Well, why don't we just all stand all over the house and just magnify that name. That name that is above every other name. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him. Given him a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to Exodus chapter 15. And then we will jump over to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, I figured since today is about the Lord, I'm going to preach about him if it's all right. And I learned a long time ago that if I just make it about him and nothing else, good things always happen. Exodus 15 and 1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. And he has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will prepare him an habitation. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was on this wise. And as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away privily or privately. But while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins." Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. My message to you today is simply Jehovah has become my Jesus. Jehovah has become my Jesus. Why don't we give that Lord one more great hand clap of praise all over this house. Come on, if you're thankful for what he done, why don't you give him praise right now? And you may be seated this morning. Thank you for standing. The Bible is a very fascinating book to say the least. It has 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,173 verses, 774,746 words. There are 18 historical books. There are five poetical books, 17 prophetical books, Four Gospels, 22 Epistles, 40 Authors, and two Covenants, and one God who spans both time and eternity. The Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is a book that is replete with God's timeless promises. It is a book that is full of God's prophetic utterances. 
But may I also remind you that while the Bible is full of complex characters, different dispensations, and a multitude of miracles, it is also a book of songs. And while the Bible entirely is not a song book, you will find that the Bible is a book that contains at least 185 different songs. Battles, coronations, funerals, cities being sacked, and seas splitting up. You can find songs in the Bible for various kinds of occasions. 150 of the 185 songs or 80% of the songs in the Bible are found in the book of Psalms, which was the songbook for the nation of Israel. We have the Song of Solomon, which we understand to be a famous love song between a bride and a groom. I would also remind you that while Solomon did write the Song of Solomon in the Bible, he also wrote a 1,004 different songs But this, the Song of Solomon, is what the Bible calls the Song of Songs. It was the greatest song he ever wrote. We then have Lamentations, which when you begin to study it in depth, you find out that that book is a set of five dirges, or songs mourning the fall of Jerusalem. The longest song in the Bible is in Psalm 119. It has 1,732 words. The shortest song or songs in the Bible are in 2 Chronicles chapters 5 and 20. They only contain seven words. And when you begin to look in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you find that there are famous songs recorded in the Scripture. I am reminded of Deborah's song because it was sung by the prophetess Deborah herself in the book of Judges 5 after the Lord gave her and Barak victory over the Canaanites. It is in Judges 5, 1 through 5 when the Bible says, Then sang Deborah and Barak in that day saying, Praise ye the Lord for avenging Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. Hear, O ye kings, give ear, O ye princesses. I Even I will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. We then have David's song which was sung after David defeated the man Goliath in the valley of Elah. It is in 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 7 where we understand that the Bible says that the women came out of the cities and they began to sing and dance with timbrels and tablets of joy and with music of instrument and this is what they sang. They said, Behold, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. We have in the Bible the, the song of Jehoshaphat. It is in 2 Chronicles where this man appoints singers as they walk into the battle. 2 Chronicles 20 and 21, the Bible says that he, speaking of Jehoshaphat, consulted with the people and he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. And they said, when you walk into battle, this is what you sing. Praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. 
We then have the song of Paul and Silas in the New Testament. Uh, Acts 16, they're in prison for preaching uh, and casting a spirit of divination out of a girl. Uh, but Acts 16, 25 says, And at midnight, uh, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I submit to you this morning uh, that this is why we still sing when we come together. Uh, this, ladies and gentlemen, is why we done what we done this morning because something powerful happens when we come together and begin to magnify his name together. How many times do we come to church and we praise him for the victories he's already done like Deborah and like the women of Israel but sometimes we've got to come to church and give him praise for victories he's not yet done. Sometimes you've got to be like Jehoshaphat, Paul and Silas and say God you haven't done it yet but here's prophetic praise. Here's a prophetic song. Ah, this is why Psalm 9 and 2 said, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praises of your name. Psalm 149 and 1 says, Praise the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of his faithful people. Can I submit to you? That is exactly what we do every Sunday and Wednesday. We come into God's house among God's people and we begin to magnify that name. Because something powerful and supernatural happens when we begin to sing songs about him. The Bible is full of songs. However, I want to focus for a few moments this morning on the first song ever to be recorded in the Bible. In fact, it is what the Bible calls the song of Moses. It's also amazing to know that Moses sings the first song in the Bible and portions of that song is the last song in the Bible. The first song is in Exodus 15. The last song is in Revelation 15. And they both contain the Bible, what the Bible calls the song of Moses. Exodus 15, the Bible's first song happens, we understand. After one of the Bible's greatest miracles, we understand that Israel had lived in Egypt for 400 plus years, but God brings them out by his mighty hand, and they begin to walk out of captivity. But they are then met with the Red Sea. But the Lord speaks to Moses to stretch out the rod over the waters. And when Moses does so, the waters stand up like a heap, and all the children of Israel pass on dry ground escaping the army of Pharaoh but when the Egyptians begin to pursue them the same God that stood the waters up like a heap is the same God that rescinds those very waters on the enemy of Israel. And because of this miracle, Moses begins to sing the song of Moses. You can find the song in its entirety in Exodus 15, 1 through 19. But I want to highlight what Moses sings when he begins. He said, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. He said, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, it is this song, the song of Moses, that captivates me more than any other song in the Bible, more than Deborah and David, more than Jehoshaphat, Paul and Silas. It is the song of Moses that intrigues me 
In fact, the first 13 words of verse number 2 is what really stands out to me more than anything else in the song. And I believe when you understand where I'm going this morning, you're going to come to the same conclusion that those 13 words in verse number 2 is the greatest words. It is the greatest lyrics ever to be recorded in a song in the Bible and outside the Bible. Moses says, The Lord is my strength and song. He is become my salvation. Uh, Moses wrote it, uh, and Moses was the first to sing it. Uh, but David, years later in Psalm 118, 14, uh, sings the same words. Uh, David says, the Lord is my strength and my song, uh, and he has become my salvation. Uh, but Moses and David uh, weren't the only two to say those words. Uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 12 and 2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and song. He also is become my salvation. Three men who lived at three different times in this world all said the same words. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. Now what are they saying? If you recognize Exodus 15 and 2, you realize that the word LORD is in all caps. Now, I don't have much time to get into this this morning, but I'll give you the highlights. Anytime in the Old Testament you see the word LORD in all caps, understand that's not a translational error. But when you see the word LORD in all caps, it's the tetragrammaton. That is what the Jews called the Old Testament covenant name of God. You see the word Lord in all caps? That's Yahweh talking. That is Jehovah talking. That it literally means the self-existent or the eternal. And so Moses, David, and Isaiah are all saying that the Lord or Jehovah is my strength and is my song. And ladies and gentlemen, I don't know about you this morning, but I'm thankful to know I'm glad that I've got consolation in the fact that God is my strength. Because there's going to be days in your life and there's going to be days in my life and there have been those days when I wake up and I don't have the strength I need for myself. But it's in that moment that the Lord Jehovah says, I'll be your strength. And there's going to be days when I don't have a song to sing. But God said, that's all right. I'm not just your strength. I am your song. This is why the Bible says he will compass me with songs of deliverance. He's going to give me songs in the night when I'm going through a trial and I have no strength and I have no song. It's okay because Jehovah will compass you. When you don't have a song to sing, he said, I'll put a song in your mouth that the angels cannot sing. Oh, but this is where it gets really good because we're on the sermon now because David, Moses, and Isaiah all said the Lord or Jehovah is my strength. He's my song, but he's also my salvation. That word salvation literally means in the Hebrew language, Yeshua which is where you and I get the word Jesus. 
So do you know what Moses, uh, David, uh, and Isaiah were all singing? Uh, they were saying that the Lord or Jehovah is my strength and song. Uh, Jehovah has become my Jesus. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I submit to you uh, all the way back in the Old Testament, uh, God put in the mouth of those three men uh, that there's a day coming uh, when the invisible, uh, when the self-existent, uh, when the eternal uh, is going to put on flesh. Uh, there's a day coming uh, when Jehovah is going going to become my Jesus. It is the greatest song ever to be sung. Pop has single ladies by Beyonce. Country has I Walk the Line by Johnny Cash. Rock has Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. But can I tell you that the church this morning has the greatest song ever to be sung. And those words simply say, Jehovah has become my salvation. Jehovah has become my Jesus. That's why I shout. That's why I rejoice. That's why I come to God's house. Because when I could not save myself, he put on flesh and he said, I'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. If nothing else gets you to rejoice, that ought to get you to rejoice. Jehovah became my Jesus. It was not an ordinary song, but it was a prophetic song. And it's not an accident that Moses, David, and Isaiah all wrote those words. Moses is a type of Christ. David is a seer of things to come. Isaiah gives us more messianic prophecies about Jesus than anybody else. And all three men were singing about a day when the Jehovah God of the Old Testament was going to make himself known. This is why in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is struggling with the idea of marrying a woman who's pregnant with a baby that's not his. Bible says Joseph was a just man. He was a good guy. And he said, I don't want to make a public example out of Mary. I'm going to put her away privately. This is why the angel appears to him and says, Joseph, fear not. Because that is born of Mary is conceived by the Holy Ghost. I know that's not your baby, Joseph. But by the way, you can't even name that baby. It's already been determined what that baby's name's going to be. You're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Do you know what the name Jesus literally means? It means Jehovah salvation. It means Jehovah saves. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus was born, that was the day Jehovah had put on flesh. When Jesus was born, that was simply meaning that every Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled right now. He was Emmanuel. God with us. He was Jesus. He was Jehovah Savior. An even greater understanding of this is in John 1 and 1 and then in John 1 and 14. I see, I love the book of John because John's on a mission. You talked about Gnosticism this morning. That is exactly what John was dealing with in the first century when he wrote the book of John. And so John comes right out of the gate swinging. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse number 14, and the Word which was God. The Word which was with God was made flesh. Another translation literally means, and the Word became flesh. 
There is an identical syntax of John chapter 1 in John chapter 2. Now hang on to me now. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, 14, and that Word became flesh. The identical language is in one chapter removed from John 1. Go to John chapter 2 before you throw it up. Hang on to me. John chapter 2, give you context. There is a marriage at Cana of Galilee. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And in the process of this, they run out of wine. Now, that's a different topic for another day. It wasn't the same wine we think of today. <laughs> anyway, they, they, they got a problem. Lord, we got, we, we got a problem. Jesus said, it's not my time to work. I'm sorry. Mary says, I know what he just said, but whatever he tells you to do, you just do it. And we understand that they bring the water pots and the water is turned into wine. Can I just insert this right here? The book of John chapter 2 has more to do with just wine at a marriage. Because in those days, they brought out the good stuff first. And then as the party progressed, they brought out the cheap stuff later. But when they bring that wine to those rulers, they said, wait a minute, you've saved the best wine for last. Can I tell you, John chapter 2 is in type and shadow, a depiction of the day of Pentecost. Because he said, you saved the best wine for last. That's why Solomon said the end of a thing is greater than the beginning. That's why the book of Joel said in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And the latter rain is going to be greater than the former rain. But when Jesus does the miracle, John 2 and 9 says the water was made wine. Or the water became wine. John 1.14 and John 2 and 9 are identical in syntax. Because when the water became wine, the water did not cease to exist. But the water was contained in the wine. But when the water became wine, the water took on a dimension that it did not have prior to becoming wine. The water was still contained in the wine. And in the parallel language, the Word became flesh. And so when the Word which was God became flesh, it didn't cease being the Word. But the Word was in the flesh. When the Word became flesh, it was just taking on a dimension of being that it did not have prior to becoming flesh. This is why John goes on and tells us in John 1 and 18, He hath fully declared Him who is the He, God, who is the Him, Jesus. The only way that God could declare Jesus is God had to become Jesus. Jehovah fully explained who Jesus was by becoming flesh. This is why 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, To it God was in Christ. The Word was in the flesh, reconciling the world, not unto themselves, but unto himself. God the Spirit was in Christ the flesh. God became a man, but he never ceased from being God. See, there's people today who believe that Jesus was divine flesh. That's inaccurate. 
And then there's other people uh, who just think Jesus was flesh, a man. Uh, they're both on the opposite sides of the extreme. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, he was 100% man, uh, but he was also 100% God. Uh, because God was in Christ. Uh, the Word became flesh. See, this is what's so powerful about the tabernacle plan God gives Israel. You look at that tabernacle plan, it is top and shadow of Jesus himself. I don't have time to get into it, but you look at how the tabernacle was laid out. It was laid out on a cross. <clears throat> but watch this. Do your own homework, but it's there, I promise. Exodus 26, I don't have time to read the verses. But Exodus 26 tells us that the framework of the tabernacle was made of, watch this, wood and gold. When they built that tabernacle, I'm sure all of those pagan people around them did not really see the importance of that tabernacle. It was wood. There's badger skins. There's all these weird purples and blues and linens and silk. But what they failed to realize is they're just looking on the outside. But once you got internal, once you got inside that tabernacle, there was an Ark of the Covenant that was overlaid with gold. It was the presence of God. It was God's glory. Hang on to me now. The, the tabernacle is powerful because the wood speaks of the humanity of Jesus. But the gold speaks of the deity of Jesus. God the gold was in Christ the wood. This is why Isaiah 53, 1 through 2 says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He's going to grow before him as a tender plant and as a root of a dry ground. He hath no former comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What is Isaiah saying about Jesus? He said there is no form nor comeliness. There's nothing going to be majestic about Jesus. They got these pretty boys painted up as Jesus in the paintings. Absolutely not. They got this smooth skin and this pretty hair. and He was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. When people looked at Jesus, oh, that's just Joseph's boy. That's the son of Mary, the brother of James. They were just looking at the wood. But what they failed to realize, and I know the Bible says there's no beauty that we should desire him. When people looked at Jesus, there was nothing physically attracting about him. He was just a common man. Do you know that the average biblical height of a man in that time was around 5'1 to 5'5? Theologians believe that Jesus was around 5'2 and a half to 5'3. Because there is no beauty in him. There, there is no formal. He wasn't six foot two, tall, dark, and handsome. No, he was five three. And he was a carpenter. He worked with his hands. He was a man's man. Ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you that all they saw was the wood. All they saw was the carpenter. But they failed to realize inside that man was the eternal, invisible God. Just like the tabernacle, there was gold inside of him. Every time Jesus went somewhere, blind eyes open, and lepers were cleansed, and the dead were raised because God was in Christ. That's why we apostolic shadow of 1 Timothy 3 and 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That word manifest literally means to make known. 
It's the same word that John uses in John 1.18. God hath fully declared him Jesus. Jehovah became our Jesus. All they saw was a man. But the invisible eternal God was in that man. I began to look at this some time ago. and Exodus 15 and 2. The Lord has become my salvation. You can literally take salvation out and put the name Jesus in because that's what it means. So I got this idea. Can I go through other verses in the Bible? And where it's reasonable, where you can substitute it, because salvation means more than just Yeshua in the Bible. That's why context matters. Because words are interchangeable multiple times in the Bible. An example of this is angels. In one place, they're called angels because that's what they are in heaven. But in another place, pastors are called angels. Words are used interchangeable, and context matters. So I got this idea, can I go through the Old Testament and look at the word salvation and replace it with the word Jesus? And can I tell you that some of our favorite verses in the Bible takes on a brand new understanding? What about Psalm 27 and 1? It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You know what that really means? It says, Jehovah is my light and Jehovah is my Jesus. Because I understand that. Who am I going to be afraid of? This is why Isaiah 26 and 1 says, In that day uh, shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. What day is he talking about? Uh, The day Jesus walks the earth. Uh, You want to talk about a song that's being sung? Uh, He said, We have a strong city. Uh, Salvation. Uh, Will God appoint uh, for walls and bulwarks? Uh, Let's change out the words. Uh, Jesus, uh, will God appoint for walls and bulwarks? Probably my favorite, Isaiah 12, 3 through 4. Therefore with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of Jesus. Now how can he say that? Because if the... The Son is not eternal, ladies and gentlemen. God the Son is not biblical. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before Jesus was born. But he said there's a day coming when Jehovah is going to put on flesh. And there's a day coming when you're going to draw water out of the wells of Jesus. Verse 4 says, in that day, you're going to say, praise the Lord, call upon his name. People say, oh, you apostolics are just name people. That's New Testament only. Oh, I beg to differ. Because you find the name of God all throughout the Old Testament. It was just revealed in the New Testament when he said, I'm going to have one name. And they're going to call upon that name. And they're going to declare his doings among the people. And you're going to make mention that his name is to be exalted. You're going to draw waters out of the wells of Jesus. That is important because go to John 4. This is why I love the book of John. He's on a mission to let people know who Jesus is. He's on a mission to destroy atheism and Gnosticism and any other ism you can think about. John chapter 4. There is a woman in Samaria who's had five husbands and she's lived with a sixth. And Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. Because I've got to fulfill Isaiah 12. 
So Jesus says, I'm going to go to Samaria and I'm going to go to Jacob's well. And lo and behold, here comes this woman who's had five husbands and living with a sixth. And the conversation begins and he says, do you have anything to drink or can you offer me a drink? And she's stunned because in those days, Jews hated Samaritans. And she said, how is it that you being a Jew asking me a Samaritan for something to drink? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And it's at that moment that Isaiah 12 begins to unfold. He said, lady, you're thinking about physical water. Because if I wanted physical water, I would draw water from the well of Jacob. But I'm talking about spiritual water. And if you drink of my water, you'll never thirst again. Ladies and gentlemen, you can drink from Jacob's well and be thirsty tomorrow. But you'll never drink from the well of Jesus and look for anything else. Ladies and gentlemen, it was at that moment... When Isaiah 12 became fulfilled. You want to talk about a powerful word picture in the Bible? John 4. There is a well sitting on a well. The well of salvation is sitting on the well of Jacob. And ladies and gentlemen, when this lady realized who Jesus was, when she got a revelation of who he was, she left her water pot and said, come see a man who told me all I've ever done. She was looking for satisfaction. That's why she had been through six men. She was looking for satisfaction. But you cannot satisfy spiritual needs with fleshly substitutes. That's why Isaiah 29 and 8 says that a thirsty man will dream and he will drink in the dream but he's going to wake up and be faint. His soul has appetite. What is he saying? He's simply saying you cannot satisfy spiritual needs with fleshly substitutes but here comes Jesus. Here comes the well of salvation and Jesus became man number seven. Jesus became the seventh man to walk into this woman's life. And the number seven means completion. Because you begin to draw from the wells of Jesus, you'll find satisfaction. You pull from the wells of Jesus, you're going to find completion. You can look all through this life for happiness, and you'll never find it unless you take a trip to the wells of salvation. You see, the reason why Jesus cut off for living water is because the Jehovah who spoke through Isaiah was the Jesus sitting at Jacob's well. He just now has a dimension of being that he did not have back in Isaiah 12. The Lord is my strength and song. He is my salvation. That word salvation literally means three things, liberty, deliverance, and prosperity. That is what, exactly what happens when we obey the gospel. When we repent, we get deliverance. When we're baptized, we get liberty. And when we receive the Holy Ghost, we receive prosperity. I'm glad to know he's my Jesus. It's personal. He became my salvation. And ladies and gentlemen, whatever you need in this house, that is exactly what he can become. I'll prove it to you. This is why John, again, John is the only gospel writer who records the seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And for some reason, every time Jesus would say those I am statements, the Jews got ticked off. You ever notice that? 
So what's going on? I am the good shepherd. What's so bad about that? It's invisible in the English, but it's visible in the ancient language. You see, every time Jesus said, I am, he was literally saying, ego, I me. Now, that is important because jump out of the New Testament, go back to the Old Testament. And Moses stands before a burning bush. And after he has stuttered his way through every excuse as to why he can't do it, he said, Lord, who do I tell Pharaoh sent me? And there is a voice that comes from that burning bush. And he says, you tell Pharaoh the I am that I am has sent you. You know what that voice was saying? You tell Pharaoh, ego on me. You tell Pharaoh that the Lord God, the self-existent eternal, is the very God that is sending you. Man, I don't have time to get into this, but that's why all the plagues of Egypt is a direct attack on the gods they served. They worship the God of cattle. That's why there's bulls on cattle and there's dead cows everywhere. They worship the God of light. That's why there's darkness. God was simply saying, they're not, but I am. That's why a stutterer, that's why somebody that had no self-esteem could walk into the courts of Pharaoh with boldness not of his own because if you know who God is, you get a revelation of who you serve, there is a boldness and there is a confidence that will come to you. You tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. Years later, and I don't have time to get into it, but the Jews become so terrified. They go into captivity, we know the story, because they backslid, and so they become so superstitious that they stop saying the name of God. Instead of saying the Lord or Jehovah or Yahweh, they would say Hashem or the name, or they would just say Adonai. This is why the commandment, take not the Lord thy God's name in vain, means more than just cussing. It literally means, don't you call yourself a Jesus name, Jehovah follower, and not live like it. That's taking the Lord's name in vain, if you want to get down to it. And so they became so terrified, they stopped using the name of God completely. And by the time Jesus walks around, it's been about four or five hundred years, and no Jew has ever spoken or heard the name of God. And here's this random carpenter walking around casually saying the name of God, ego I me. And they're getting ticked off. You want to know why he could say that name? It's because it was his name to use. That's why Jesus says, Ego I me, and Peter walks on water. That's why Jesus uses his name, and the men fall in the garden like cordwood because you use the name. You speak the name, and something is going to happen. That's why we sing about it, and that's why we preach about it because everything God was back then is wrapped up in the name Jesus now. See, this is why Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews are confused. You're not even 50 years old yet, and you're saying you're before Abraham. They're just looking at the wood. But there's gold inside that body that was here long before Abraham walked the earth. That's why Jesus said these words, and this is a strong statement, but Jesus said it, not me. He said, if you believe not that I am, you're going to die in your sins. 
If you don't believe that I am the self-existent eternal Jehovah in flesh, you're going to die in your sins. And this is why Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you're going to know I am. When I die on a cross, something is going to happen. And we're about to get to it. Jesus says, when I die on that cross, you're going to know that I am who I said I am. This is why we do everything in the name of Jesus. That's why Colossians says, whatsoever you do in word and deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. We pray in that name, we baptize in that name. Because the eternal God is wrapped up in that name. I was watching a debate some time ago, and I'm not a debater, but I like to watch them. And this guy who's not apostolic was debating an apostolic pastor. And uh, he kind of made a snood remark to that apostolic pastor trying to belittle us because he said, you apostolics are so narrow-minded that you only have three or four subjects to preach. His point was, you're more inspirational than you are informational. You people just shout and you don't have any depth in that book. And he said, you only have three or four subjects. And immediately when I thought of that, I'm like, you're wrong. Because we don't have three or four subjects to preach. We've got one. Because I can read that book and come to the understanding that if I preach Jesus, everything that I need flows out of him. And the only way that is possible is the self-existent eternal God. The Jehovah God of the Old Testament became flesh. And we call him Jesus because he is Jehovah Savior. And whatever I need, I can just call on that name. We're not Jesus only. We're not Jesus. We're Jesus everything. Because everything we need flows from him. I'll be honest. I was laying in the hotel bed this morning about 1.31. And what am I going to preach this morning? Because I know there's going to be a lot of people here. And there's going to be people in this room who needs provision. So I thought, you know what? I could preach about Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. But then I thought, now wait a minute. There's going to be other people that probably need a healing. So I could have preached about Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. But then I thought, you know what? There's probably people in the room who needs victory at some place in their life. So I could have preached about Jehovah Nisi, our banner of victory. And then I thought, you know what? We're living in a very troublesome world. There's probably people in this room who needs peace. So I could have preached about Jehovah Shalom. I could have preached about Jehovah Rohi, our shepherd, the God that's always with us. I could have preached about Jehovah Shema or Jehovah Shabbat, and the list goes on and on. And so while I'm laying there in bed wondering, what in the world am I going to preach? Because there's going to be a various amount of needs in that room. The light bulb came off, and I just decided, you know what? I'll just preach Jesus. Because you may need a healing on this side of the building, and he'll become healing. But at the same time, he can become your provision over here. You may need peace in the back. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, if you preach Jesus, you get miracles. You preach Jesus, you get salvation. Everything that we'll ever need is wrapped up in that name. But here we are, and we're going we're gonna to close this up. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up on the cross, you're going to know that I am. So what's going on at the cross? Matthew 27, 46. Now here's the truth of this verse. 
This is a verse that has caused a lot of people to wonder and be confused. Jesus said something's going to happen at Calvary that you're going to know I am who I said I am. So what's going on? Matthew 27, 46, Jesus is moments away from dying and he says that statement that people have gotten confused over. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we do not let the Bible interpret the Bible, that sounds like there's more than one. But here's the point. If they're co-equal, how can one leave the other? Jesus the Son is not saying God the Father has literally left me. I got Bible for that. So what is going on in Matthew 27? Jesus was the only man ever to be born who never sinned. He was tempted in all manners like we are and yet never sinned. The Bible lets us know he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That we may be made the righteousness of God. So what is going on in Matthew 20? For the first time in Jesus' life, he's feeling the effects of sin. Because the Bible says sin separates us from the Lord. Isaiah said it is your sins that have separated you and your God. It was sin that separated Adam and Eve out of the presence of God in the garden. For the first time in his life. Because remember, Isaiah prophesied and said he's going to feel everything that we feel. That's not just heartache and brokenness. That is the effects of sin. The New Testament said like a lodestone, our sin was placed on his shoulders. In that moment, he's feeling what you and I feel when there's sin in our life. Alienated from God. So why did Jesus say those words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If I were to ask you, or if I were to say the words amazing grace, what comes next? If I were to say the Lord is my shepherd, you, you get it? It's just programmed in our mind. You can go 10 years and never hear amazing grace, but you let them get those first two words out, and the entire song comes back to memory. Because it is something we have heard for so long. Can I tell you that when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He's not saying that crying out in desperation. Again, the Bible has to interpret the Bible. Psalm 22 and 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, nobody's being crucified in Psalm 22. David is not dying on a cross in Psalm 22. But can I tell you, the Bible tells us that David was not just a singer and a songwriter. He was a seer of things to come. David was a prophet. And I don't have time to get into it. You read the book of Psalm chapter 22 and you find out that that is a prophecy giving about the crucifixion of Jesus. He says things about like, they cast my lots and they part. They, they cast lots for my garments and they, they divide my lots and my vesture. He said they pierce my hands and my feet. I'm brought down to the jaws of death. You can read Psalm 22 and you realize that that is a prophecy about Jesus dying. And when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he was doing? One more time in his love and mercy trying to reach those people who rejected him.
He said, you're going to know when I'm dying, I am who I said I am. You know what Jesus done? He reaches all the way back hundreds of years to the songbook of Israel and begins to sing. Jesus is not crying out in desperation for help. Jesus is singing on the cross. And you can read it in Psalm tw- or Matthew 27. When he says those words, they begin to quote Psalm 22. Because in that moment, their eyes are open and revelation occurs. Now, wait a minute. David prophesied about this. And we are now living in the fulfillment of it. Jesus sings a song on Good Friday. Because he said, the day that I die, you're going to know that I am. You're going to know that I didn't send somebody else to do the dirty work. I came myself. And I died on a cross. And as we stand all over this room this morning, can I tell everybody in this room that yes, that was flesh dying on a cross. But God the gold was inside that flesh because he loved us enough to say, I'm going to do it myself. You ever heard that statement, if you want something done right, do it yourself? God tried it a lot of other ways in the Old Testament. The blood of bulls and bullocks and goats. But it wasn't sufficient. So God said, I got to do it myself. I got to put on flesh. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2, I am determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But aren't you thankful that that God, that Savior, didn't just die, but he rose again. So we all might have life and have it more abundantly. It's the greatest song ever to be written. Jehovah has become your Jesus. And as we lift our hands all over this house, we're going to transition. They're going to sing whatever they feel to sing. Simply come on this Easter Sunday to preach about Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, because I understand that if I preach Jesus, whatever you need in this house, you can have it. You need a healing, he can heal you. You need prayers answered, he can give answer to those prayers. You need direction, he can give direction. And we've already got people moving, so if you need something from the Lord today, we're not going to pressure anybody. But if you want something from the Lord, I wonder if you could just step out and come bring your need to Him right now. If you feel more comfortable to pray in your seat, you're more than welcome to do it. But I'm telling you, the Lord Jehovah's in this house. And He said, whatever you need, I can become that right now.